My name is James Shaw. I'm a recent graduate of Wycliffe College. I'm an ordinand with the Church of England, but I'm also working with a non-Anglican church in Toronto because life is hilarious. I'm not nearly as interesting as Bishop Stephen Andrews. <laughs> He's going to talk a little bit about who he is. Well, I'm Stephen Andrews, and uh, as James sort of refers to me, I'm Bishop Stephen Andrews because I was, uh, became a diocesan bishop of the next Anglican diocese, which is north of Toronto. Uh, and I became that in 2009 and served in that capacity until I took up the appointment here as a principal of Wycliffe College in 2016. What can I tell you? I can tell you that I was ordained in the Anglican Church of Canada in 1986 in Halifax and have been very involved at you know, both the diocesan levels uh, and the national levels of the church, and uh, that includes being involved in general synods. Some of you may know that we've had a general synod in the Anglican Church of Canada. It was uh, publicized. Uh, we have at least one survivor here, uh, Mark <laughs> Regis. I was a delegate there. And so it was largely because of the experience of General Synod. It's my eighth General Synod uh, that Steve Huco suggested that uh, I uh, enter a discussion this evening about Great. perhaps a little bit about that experience, but also about the question of how the church handles conflict. Hmm. And uh, I've got my own prejudices about that. So. <laughs> so I was torn today between whether I use my phone and look like a millennial that can never come off their phone or print out paper and then be judged for wasting paper. This is the eternal conflict nowadays of how we are perceived. I went with the former, uh, so I'll refer to my phone. I promise you I'm not checking Snapchat right now. So to start with, we are, we are living in a world that is incredibly divided. If we look at our neighbors to the south, we see that Democrat-Republican divide really schisming the country. England, where I'm from, is in the throes of more division than I think it has ever been, certainly in my lifetime and probably throughout its very long history over this uh, Brexit negotiations, if we can call it that. And Canada seems to be trotting along that way as well. But I wonder, do you think, when we look at the world and how divided it is, do you think theological differences and theological divisions, do you think they're different, or do you think one is following the other? And explain that as best you yeah. can. <laughs> well, I mean, I think they all have to be related, right? I mean, partly because we are creatures of our own culture, so... Uh, you know, there's a sense in which our, the way that we understand the nature of, of our world and the, the nature of the church is drawn from the categories of our own experience of uh, life in the world, in the non-church world. Mm. And one of the features of that, of course, is, uh, is the kind of uh, liberal democracy that, you know, that we've grown up in. And uh, lots of people have asked uh, whether or not uh, the, 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 you know, the world, uh, democratic um, nations have sort of reached the limits of, uh, of democracy. You know, it's a commonplace that uh, Winston Churchill said that democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others that have been tried. <laughs> and there's a sense in which uh, the church has been, has adopted this kind of democratic model, particularly in the Anglican church. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's got its strengths, but it's also uh, led us into these kind of polarized uh, camps. Mm -hmm. And so I think I, th I think that there's a mutual kind of uh, influence there. So just before we move right into church world, 
Do you think the secular world has something that maybe it can teach the church? There's a lot of talk about how we've fallen away from Christendom, but actually I think there might be some things in the world that are maybe a bit more helpful. Uh, do you think that maybe the church can be humble and say, actually, you guys have something to teach us, or are we, uh, you know, do we actually have all the answers? Yeah, that's a good question. I've it's loaded good, that quite a lot. But. Well, and it's interesting that you ask uh, what the world can teach us that's helpful, because uh, I would have said that, you know, there's a lot that the world can teach us that's unhelpful, too, mm -hmm. and teach us about ourselves that's sure. unhelpful. So this is one of the reasons why, particularly you as an aspiring preacher, uh, I would encourage you and other young, you know, preachers uh, to read widely in secular literature, yeah. uh, you know, novels and, and such, because one does gain insight into this human psyche, the human soul, and uh, what makes people tick, and we sort of come to realize things about ourselves often that we don't because we live in a, we, we can live in a fairly insulated world in the life of the church, mm -hmm. right? So yeah, we have a lot, I think we have a lot to learn and, and, uh, and that's because, uh, you know, uh, God doesn't just play in the church. I mean, the world is his playground and, uh, and we learn by paying attention to what God is doing in the world. So out of that, I suppose, how do you think a church makes healthy decisions? What does that look like, a healthy decision process for a church? Yeah. Well, I don't know, because I'll, I'll be frank, I've never been part of a, a, of a, a church <laughs> uh, that, uh, that I think is sort of engaged in these things uh, where we haven't come out worse than in some respects than when we went in. It's, okay. it's uh, part of its the consequence of living in this, uh, you know, deeply kind of polarized ideological uh, context in which we find ourselves. But I think that there are things that we should learn. I mean, the church, it's not to say that the church uh, simply resorts to, you know, pugilism and fisticuffs when, when it comes to working out disputes, parts of the world. Actually, that's how they resolve things. But uh, the church has tended to try to avoid that. Uh, certainly in any sort of physical way, but, uh, you know, it's instructive to look at the way the church has debated the issues around human sexuality, for example. Uh, you'll know, uh, those of you that have got uh, sort of familiarity with the Anglican church, how, uh, you know, uh, early on in the life of the church from, well, from the end of the, uh, of the 19th century, or the 20th century, the church has been debating issues of mar about marriage. In 1888, the Lambeth Conference thought that the church needed to declare themselves uh, on the nature of uh, divorce and whether or not people who've been divorced could be allowed to receive communion. Mm -hmm. That debate continued in the life of the church uh, for generations, and it wasn't fully resolved in Canada even until uh, uh, the 1960s. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so the, the church has been engaged in these, in these disputes, and it's not just, you know, the question of marriage uh, or divorce. It's also questions around the ordination of women, which is a more contemporary one, uh, where the church has had to find these ways of, of reaching some kind of, uh, hopeful, hopefully some consensus, mm -hmm. but in the failure to reach that consensus, uh, the question is how do we uh, live together in some kind of, uh, you know, harmony with one another. So um, there are different processes that the church has tried to, uh, you know, bring about some sense of uh, agreement. 
in the in the Lambeth context, uh, the latest thing that was tried uh, with the bishops was a process called indaba. Okay. Uh, are you familiar with that? I need you to explain that a little bit more. I'm not Anglican enough, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, in Dab, in and it comes from a, a, an African. It's an African word. I think it's a Zulu word, which means meeting, okay. and it's a kind of. Uh, we're told it's a kind of uh, tribal or community way of uh, resolving problems where people sit around and they just talk about it until they all come to some kind of resolution. Mm -hmm. And so that was the plan in, uh, in uh, the last Lambeth Conference. The bishops were broken up into groups and they were deliberate in making sure that bishops from different parts of the world were together, bishops that held different points of view were together and uh, simply given questions to, uh, to discuss with one another. And I think that was helpful. I think that uh, some relationships were formed uh, in the communion in that context that continue and, and have been uh, productive. It's, it hasn't been the salvation of the church, but one of the problems in my view is that, you know, they adopted this particular technique of Indaba, but they didn't fully adopt the spirit of Indaba because Indaba is a bit like the indigenous healing circles in Canada. We, we often like to sort of uh, treat problems in the indigenous fashion of sitting in a circle and, and uh, passing an object around and each person that holds the object has their opportunity to speak their uh, voice and they say what they need to say then they pass it along and you're not allowed to interrupt mm -hmm. and everybody has a chance to speak. It takes a long time especially if you've got a big circle. But the thing is, is that we often think that, well, we go around the circle once and, and we should have resolved it. But in the indigenous community, sometimes it takes a, lo a lot longer than one indigenous circle. And in Daba, I'm told, uh, it takes a long time uh, sometimes to resolve these issues. So the problem is we don't, you know, uh, in our Western context, we don't have the patience, uh, I think, that we need. Uh, to see our way through these things. I think that's an interesting way of phrasing things, how, uh, how much our culture, even as a younger person, I can see how the eagerness to rush things and the eagerness to get decisions will leave people on either side of any argument without feeling they've had their voice heard mm -hmm. and what a difference that makes and how that changes the spirit of discussion when, and those of us that were really into watching the live stream of oh, the synod, wow. which I'm pleased to say I was. You might be a church geek after Yeah, that's, that's how I like to spend a Friday night, you know, kick back with a couple of brewskis and watch an Anglican synod. Um, there you go. <laughs> um, and there was one member who felt like his voice hadn't been heard, and we saw the kind of hurt, and it was interesting reading his, even his remorse for his actions on that, that, you know, clearly this wasn't a way that he wanted to behave, but even someone who's as, I presume, as, as patient and educated and spiritual as I would expect a bishop to be, can still be driven to places that, uh, that act, make us act in ways we're not proud of and what mm -hmm. a difference that makes. Mm -hmm. So somewhat related, do you think bishops have too much power, Stephen? <laughs> um, that's a really, that's a very interesting question because actually Canadian bishops are, actually have a lot more authority than, the, than they do in the Church of England. And also in the, in the Episcopal Church in the States, pe people don't realize that in the Episcopal Church, 
the national church can make decisions that are binding on the diocesan bishops. Mm -hmm. But that's not the case in Canada. There are very few things that the national church could uh, resolve that a diocesan bishop would be obliged to uh, follow. A good example of that would be, some of you may be familiar with our liturgical services in, in the Anglican Church. We have, we have two authorized liturgies. Uh, one of them is the Book of Common Prayer, uh, which is actually enshrined in, um, in our solemn declaration as the official liturgy of the Anglican Church of Canada. And then we have the Book of Alternative Services, the Green Book, which is the ubiquitous service. Mm -hmm. But not many people realize that a diocesan bishop could outlaw the BAS in his diocese or her diocese. Couldn't do that with the Book of Common Prayer, but, uh, but could do that with the Book of Alternative Services. So that's just how much kind of authority that they have. When uh, dioceses like their bishops, they like they don't mind that authority. Mm -hmm. We had a we my, my very first synod actually as a diocesan bishop. We had a controversy on the floor of synod. The diocese <laughs> passed a, a resolution authorizing parishes to apply to what's called the Trillium Foundation or the Trillium Fund of the of the uh, province of, of Ontario. Mm for things like, you know, they want to get an elevator, accessibility, that, that kind of thing. Now, the problem with that, in my view, was that the, all the funding for the Trillium Fund came from gambling, mm -hmm. the Ontario Lottery and Gaming Corporation. So they, in their holy greed, let's call it, in their <laughs> uh, sort of uh, well-meaning greed, endorsed this resolution but at the very end of Synod, I, I have to give my assent to all the uh, resolutions. And I said, I give my assent to all, those, all the resolutions except for one. And that was the one that I didn't uh, allow. Well, you know, uh, fortunately, there had been enough goodwill expressed in the course of, of our Synod that, you know, they let their bishop sort of get away with that. Um, so a lot depends on the nature of the relationship of the bishop with, uh, with the diocese and with the church. Now, in the case of, of what happened uh, two weeks ago in, in Vancouver, uh, there was a tremendous reaction uh, to the uh, role of the bishops. Uh, those of you that haven't followed this discussion, uh, we debated a motion to change our marriage canon to allow for the marriage of same-sex couples. And it's a, it's a high standard uh, to pass a resolution like that for two reasons. One, because it's, uh, it, it involves the change of our church regulations, what we call our canons. And the second is because it's, it, it actually signals a change in our doctrine of marriage. So our rules require us to, if we're going to change the canon and change doctrine, it has to happen at two successive synods, and our synods are held every three years, and they have to pass by two-thirds majority in each of the houses of the laity, the clergy, and the bishops. Uh, and that motion to change the, the marriage canon passed narrowly at the Synod of 2016. In the Synod of 2019, two weeks ago, it failed to pass in the House of Bishops by, by two votes. Uh, consequently, uh, lots of questions were raised about, uh, about the role of bishops and um, uh, 
if you look historically at the way that the church has voted on a variety of issues, you will all, almost always find that the bishops are the uh, gatekeepers. They're the last ones to come on side. So the questions I mentioned earlier about marriage and divorce uh, and the ability for the so-called innocent party in a divorce to receive communion, bishops were the most reluctant of the, of the uh, groups to come along uh, with with those um, change in policies. So, um, so the bishops were acting in a way that one could have predicted that they act, um, and, uh, and one has to ask the question, how did they get to become bishops? And the answer is that they were elected to those positions mm -hmm. by the members of their diocese, and they were elected presumably because uh, they felt that that individual had particular kinds of charisms, uh, that they proved themselves uh, as um, productive uh, uh, and loyal members of the church, and um, uh, so consequently, and 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 bishops take vows about the nature of their spiritual leadership mm -hmm. in the diocese that the diocese concurs with. So I think it's just a momentary uh, reaction. Uh, when uh, people say that uh, bishops are, uh, have too much authority in the church. I think that, you know, uh, if you give them time and look at the nature of, of Episcopal leadership, I think that they might not think that they have too much authority. It's just when decisions don't go the way that they want them to go. Mm. So it's, it's interesting for me, now I'm in a slightly more evangelical and far less Episcopal role, uh, but the news of what happened at Synod is floated around in lots of different worlds anyway. Mm -hmm. And the perception is, it seems like the bishops don't represent the people. That's the line that I've heard from, again, people that have no skin in this game at yeah. all, uh, which is admittedly a kind of difficult place to be. You, you use the example of divorced people receiving communion, uh, where I think I... For me personally, I'm okay with a divorced person receiving communion. I don't know how the room feels about that. But you mentioned how the bishops were the last to come around, but they finally did. That it seemed to me, again, forgive me for being a layman here, that actually they maybe should have come around sooner on that. So how do we how do we respond to that? That actually, I'm, by your own example, it kind of seems like well, maybe they should be listening to the laity if that's where they end up. Right. So. I, I describe them as gatekeepers, so the question is, what's at stake for them? And um, bishops have a you know, solemn uh, vow to uphold the doctrine and discipline of the Anglican Church of Canada, mm -hmm. and uh, there is a well-known sort of Old Testament principle that you don't move the boundary markers until you know why they're there. And uh, bishops are the kind of least um, likely to sort of well, traditionally, I should say, at least likely to sort of um, want to move boundary markers. Uh, they want to have a, you know, an understanding of why they're there, and there are things that are worth uh, protecting in the status quo sometimes that uh, you know people are afraid of of losing. So you might ask, well, what is that? What what did it, what about the divorce question? Mm -hmm. Well, what they debated at the time was uh, the integrity of the family. And they were uh, wor worried primarily about uh, the status of children, 
Uh, there was a whole period of that debate where um, uh, they didn't know whether to support annulment or not, mm -hmm. marriage annulment. They thought that annulment uh, in many cases made a lot of sense, particularly with the idea that uh, somebody had violated their, their, their matrimonial vows in such a way that, um, that they, they no longer had a legitimate kind of marriage. But the problem was then that would make children illegitimate. Uh, sure. So, so they, you know, they they mm -hmm. they wrestled with these, and they were the last ones to kind of come around uh, and and realize out of their own pastoral, um, and this is where the contest often lies, uh, you know, between a kind of pastoral response to a particular issue, and a response that has more to do with the kind of theological integrity of that tradition. Um, and both in, in, in the case of, um, of marriage and divorce, in the case of the blessing of same-sex unions, which we debated in the Anglican Church of Canada just before the marriage question, uh, in all of these cases, it seems to me that the pastoral challenges and the pastoral demands, pastoral needs, uh, were the ones, were the things that finally uh, cause some bishops to uh, in, in many cases, uncomfortably uh, adopt a progressive view of, uh, of those institutions. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and uh, I, think, I think even today, if you talk to a number of them who uh, believe in um, uh, you know, the marriage of same-sex partners, uh, uh, they will still uh, voice some misgivings about it. Mm -hmm. um, they're very much in favor of it in terms of... Uh, uh, a pastoral response, but I think they become confused about the, the, the sacramental nature of marriage itself and whether or not uh, these arrangements um, qualify as Christian marriage. Mm -hmm. There was a time, actually, after the last uh, General Synod, or just before the last General Synod, where we were debating same-sex same blessings, the Bishop of Toronto assured the diocese that... Um, that uh, he could see a case for blessing same-sex un same unions, but it was clear that it was not marriage. Okay. Um, but clearly that shifted in people's minds. So where do you discern where the line should be between that kind of that pastoral and that theological battle that rages on all the time? And for example, Ephraim Radner's article that he wrote on Christian marriage at the beginning of June, which is a phenomenal paper and anyone that knows Ephraim knows that he is intelligent beyond measure. Yeah. Uh, but there is no doubt that that is a profoundly theological paper with very little, for me personally, in the pastoral. That if someone comes to me saying, this is something I'm considering or struggling with, even someone in, say, my congregation that yeah. says, I don't really know where I land on this, Ephraim's paper is probably not the first place I send them, yeah. despite its theological brilliance yeah. um, and coherence. Yeah. When is there a point when the theological does give way to the pastoral? Yeah. Well, I, I think that um, what we'd like to say is that the theological gives way to the pastoral when we understand the pastoral response as an authentically theological um, expression, mm -hmm. right? that we've thought through the theology of, uh, you know, whatever is motivating our pastoral response. I'm not sure we're there yet, particularly in the, in the subject of, of uh, human sexuality or, or marriage. 
Um, and I mentioned earlier that you know people I think are still confused about the distinction between Christian marriage and non-Christian marriage. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ephraim touches on this in his in his article. I think in a very helpful way. Um, he takes he takes our discussion, uh, in my view, down um, a line of reasoning that we haven't seen very often in the life of the church. I shouldn't say in the life of the church, but in contemporary debate. It's a, a line of reasoning that talks about, um, it's, it's essentially, uh, you know, what we would call a teleological argument uh, rooted in a, in a kind of natural law that um, the nature of sort of human being as an embodied creature, a uh, mortal creature uh, in, in, in time and space, uh, that that is kind of programmatic, if you will, for larger social structures marriage in particular because of the role of procreation. So that's a natural law argument I think that Ephraim's uh, making here. Um, and he was taken a task for it by Chris Britton yep. uh, and, uh, and they had a, I thought they had a very interesting and fruitful discussion. And that is a helpful back and forth to read for anyone that's interested in this conversation I think. Yeah. But I, but I think that's where we need to go because I think without some, my own view is that without some kind of natural law, theology, um, it's very difficult for us, particularly as kind of even Bible-believing evangelicals, mm -hmm. to um, understand uh, human sexuality as a kind of theological, in a kind of theological way, right? Mm -hmm. That is to say, um, who, in, in what way do we express our God-likeness uh, through our uh, sexual uh, appetites and desires and the expression of our sexuality and how, how should that be the case I, I I don't know that a lot of folks have talked about that and I would feel a lot more confident about the whole issue if I had a, an understanding of that but <laughs> getting back to your point um, I think there are people who are not willing to make the pastoral um, accommodation until they're sufficiently sort of satisfied that there's a connection with their own theological convictions. Sure. Because, you know, one can, you know, make uh, judgments that out of, for pastoral reasons that uh, eventually become imprudent, mm. show, show themselves to be imprudent. We don't always have the perspective uh, to be able to see that. Sure. So, out of what has been, you know, we can call it a contentious vote or a difficult conversation, what does it look like to model healthy conflict in, in a world that, frankly, models conflict about as badly as, as could possibly be done? Yeah. I don't want to get all end times here, but it really does seem like mother turning against father, at yeah, least in no, Brexit no. Britain. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I began by saying that I, I don't know that I've been part of a, you know, really, you know, healthy and productive uh, confrontation in in the life of the church. I've been through you know a number of confrontations at the sort of uh, parish level and uh, and at the diocesan level. But part of my involvement in the Anglican Church of Canada at the at the sort of national level has been on a national committee that's called the Faith Worship and Ministry Committee, uh, and we were given the task of sort of leading the church's discussion around same-sex blessings, mm -hmm. um, sort of coming uh, into the you know, uh, into the middle of the 2000s, and then sh it shifted to the question of marriage. But part of part of that work with the Faith Worship Ministry Committee 
was paralleled by another committee that I was on called the Primates Theological Commission. This was a kind of think tank that was established by General Synod uh, as a consequence of the Book of Alternative Services. Mm -hmm. People thought the theology of the Book of Alternative Services is kind of kind of wacky, and uh, we need some, we need some theologians to come together and sort of uh, help us think about where we're headed theologically. Uh, so. When I was appointed to the commission, we were, <laughs> we'd had our first meeting, we're mapping out our kind of agenda of what we thought the church needed to engage in, and then we got another um, message from the Council of General Synod saying what we really want to do is talk about sex. So around the table, uh, we had people from every conceivable perspective. Uh, some of them uh, were there on the floor of Synod in the last, uh, in the last General Synod. And, and I have to say that, um, you know, the course of the next couple of years as we produced our, our document, the St. Michael Report, um, uh, a, a deep uh, friendship uh, developed mm -hmm. uh, between us. And we were able to produce a report uh, which was a consensus report. And uh, it articulated uh, the things that where we differed, uh, we came to certain conclusions that we, you know, we mo interpreted the words maybe slightly differently, but we decided that the matter of same-sex blessings was not a matter of core doctrine in the Anglican Church of Canada in the sense of being a kind of creedal doctrine. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we all grew in our understanding and respect of, uh, for one another and of a variety of opinions in the life of the church. It took, us a, it took us a lot of work to do that. We had to do a lot of ca very careful listening, a lot of careful repeating back to one another what we thought the other person was saying. Uh, there were some confrontational moments there, um, but in the end, I think we found ourselves sort of enriched, certainly in terms of our understanding of the nature of human sexuality, but also uh, uh, about the nature of the church and uh, the kind of diversity that uh, lives in the church um, and what it is that has the capacity for keeping us uh, together. Sure. So, um, I, you know, if, we, if, if more people could do that, I think we would be further ahead. I don't think we would have this, we wouldn't have this problem solved, but I think we'd be a lot further ahead than where we are now. Sure. We'd have more patience for one another. I think you're right. One, one final question uh, to bring it a little bit more closer to home for you and for me, I think. Uh, one of the wonderful things about watching Synod on that crazy Friday night was seeing the number of uh, voices that were there, from, again, from all sides of the conversation and making sure that all those voices were heard. One of the things I think it's fair to say about Wycliffe, the Wycliffe faculty in particular, is that there isn't as much diversity there, that we're looking at a group of folks, uh, there's no representation from the LGBT plus community, uh, everyone's white, and I think everyone's over 50, maybe over 40 even. Um, so what does it look like for you as principal, as a college, to make sure different voices are heard and a part of that conversation? Or, or maybe they're not important. That's, <laughs> that's a, I'll let you yeah, answer that no, how you a, like. That's a good question. I mean, it does, it does indicate, uh, you know, that many people think that, uh, you know, that the church is um, called to be uh, a garden, you know, where a thousand flowers bloom. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure where that comes from exactly, but uh, it seems to me that um, 
that we're all given gifts that we're called to um, contribute to the life of, of the community. And uh, that um, uh, our, our calling is to, um, is to do that with, uh, with as much um, uh, graciousness and fidelity as, as, as we possibly can. Um, I don't, I, I'm not convinced that, um, that the way forward, uh, if we're really trying to think seriously, uh, theologically, about sort of who we are as a church, that is just simply uh, getting as many different voices around the table as possible. Um, I think that, um, uh, I think that uh, uh, it, you know, variety is God's creation, and I, I don't deny that. But I also think that what really uh, marks us out as a Christian community is not sort of the thousand flowers, but actually how, how much we're willing to suffer for one another. I think, I think suffering is actually the mark of the church. I don't think diversity is the mark of the church. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I would want to take the question of Wycliffe's role in that in slightly a different way, right? Um, how are you willing to suffer then? We can phrase it that way. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that uh, um, I think that it's incumbent upon us, uh, you know, as uh, as as professors and as a theological college, um, to uh, attend to the cries of, of the world and to the to attend to the cries of our brothers and sisters, uh, and to um, uh, meet them in their need to the point of our own uh, uh, self-giving. And um, uh, as I said, I don't think that just happens around a table. It doesn't, it doesn't happen in general synod, but it happens in uh, sort of living with one another mm -hmm. and, um, and that, you know, we have to be true to uh, the convictions that uh, we believe God has uh, called us to live into. Um, and uh, in our case, uh, um, in the particular points of view that we represent uh, as believing in, you know, particular Anglican tradition or particular liturgical traditions or adopting uh, particular views of, of marriage, for example, um, I think the church is actually strengthened by our ability to articulate and um, defend those views to the best of our abilities. So that's not to say I want to silence any views, and, and, and as you know, we do have you know, gay and lesbian community here in the mm -hmm. college and in our classes. Yep. Um, Professor Radner teaches, I think, the only uh, course on human sexuality at the Toronto School of Theology. As far as I'm aware. And, he, and, and, he, and it's always got uh, people from a variety of points of view in it. Um, I'm not saying we're doing as well as we should do there, but, but, uh, but I, th but, but, um, but I do th want us to say, stay true to you know our convictions in this, mm -hmm. to grow deeper in them. Yep. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, we probably have enough time for everyone to ask a question if they like. Uh. <laughs> I have two questions, but I'll ask one, and then I'll, if I remember, I'll ask the other one later. Almost kind of the, the arc that you're drawing is that inevitably um, the church, or at least the Anglican church, follows along with the mores of society, eventually comes around. Um, and, and so I wonder, 
around the idea of, of or the assumption around what progress is and what progress looks like. Um, I am also wondering about, um, um, is it the dilemma of the church simply conforming to the world uh, inevitably um, and and uh, and or if we are if countercultural starts being defined as oppressive um, then then where does that leave the church <clears throat> in terms of being a witness but also uh, wh where does that lie in terms of our conformity to societal mores versus um, yeah, you know, trying to be trying to be theologically yeah. true, like integral to oneself, right? Yeah, that's a great question, Julia. I think I, I mean, I do think that the challenge, and James has touched on this, is to try to. It, it, it's it's not just a, you know, the, the the position of the church shouldn't be sort of you know sort of contramundum, you know, just just contramundum against the world. You know, anything that the world stands for, is I'm stands for, I'm against. But it has to um, understand uh, human nature and and how human nature, in a variety of expressions, sort of you know, in a contemporary world and in in, in in history, um, has uh, compromised uh, uh, you know the God, God's design for for humanity and God's uh, de design for uh, human community. And that has a variety of expressions, and uh, so rather than rather than sort of being against, um, you know, a world where there are no bike lanes, for example, um, you know, uh, it might actually be more helpful for us to uh, understand what are the human dynamics that lead to a kind of situation where, um, uh, you know, where uh, human beings are driven to the kind of um, uh, use of the environment uh, that, that, that we have, the exploitation of, it, of the environment, um, and uh, to recognize our own complicity in that as well. So I think there, I think there are ways of there are ways of confronting the world, the ways of the world that are more kind of fundamental than uh, doing battle with these uh, you know these expressions. Really, the, in the end, they're superficial expressions of what's a, a deeper problem of the human heart. Um, I think that we, I, th I think that we need two things here: we need uh, perspective, and we need humility. Um, we need perspective because um, we don't know uh, what in the next generation is going to make of us. But I can pretty well guarantee that they're going to look at us and say. What did they think they were doing? <laughs> Why do I say that? Because that's what we do about our parents' generation and the generations before us. We, you know, we, we try and navigate by our own lights, but our own lights are limited and, um, you know, by a variety of things. And we just need the humility to uh, admit that. Um, uh, you know, right now, uh, uh, you know, the church is in contortions over questions of marriage. But, you know, uh, in earlier periods it was bent about um, what you should wear to church if you were a priest on, on Sunday. 
Fortunately, they've uh, changed their minds on that, and I can wear a T-shirt. <laughs> well, uh, you know, uh, you should know that there is a bishop who went to the stake so that you could do that, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, 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 I kind of, I, I, you know, I, I, I have this kind of um, solar system view of church doctrine sometimes, that, um, you know, there, there are these doctrines, you know, if you sort of imagine the sun as the kind of um, concentration of truth, if you will, and you've got all these doctrines that are related to it, but they, they, they go in these elliptical orbits, and uh, sometimes, they're, sometimes they really come close to that, and you want to defend them, but other times they're just not, just not the issue, right? So... Uh, no, I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean to minimize the issues that, that, uh, that preoccupy the church at the moment, but I'm just conscious of the fact that, um, you know, I'm not going to, nobody's going to take me to task for not wearing a, a surplus uh, on Sunday. Mm -hmm. And yet, uh, right? So... Well, many of our Anglican forefathers were executed for... One of, for one of yours, actually. One well, of yeah, one of mine yeah. personally, but yeah. were executed for refusing to speak Latin in a church on yeah, a Sunday right. because that was the issue yeah. of the day. So he says it's interesting the way that these things ebb and flow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think we need to walk with a certain degree of humility in that respect. Um, regarding the, the historic... Um, a development with the indigenous church being self-determining. Yeah. How does that play out now in moving forward into the life of the Anglican Church of Canada? Does that mean that they will have their sort of general synod, their own and their own general synod and their governing body? How are they related? I, I just wonder about and curious how that will work out in terms of our relationship um, governmentally and ecclesiologically with with the indigenous church. Yeah, that's a great question, Orban. And it's, it's, still, um, it's still in process, right? Uh, the last General Synod, um, uh, there were a couple of significant uh, moments there. Uh, the uh, Synod did endorse, uh, you know, the sort of next steps uh, towards self-determination, one of which, well, one of which included giving the Anglican Council of Indigenous Peoples a vote in General Synod. Uh, they were, before this, they were invited for the most part as spectators. Uh, and then the second is that they were given the privilege of ordering their own affairs without having to get the approval of General Synod. I don't know the limits to those affairs. I mean, presumably there are some things that they, they, they couldn't do without the approval of General Synod, but uh, I think that has yet to be tested. Uh, the National Indigenous Anglican Bishop for example, um, was formally declared an archbishop and occupies the same sort of level of uh, access to the, um, to the highest bodies of the church um, uh, that the other metropolitans in the church have uh, and is regarded now as an archbishop. Um, but uh, at the same time, I think technically the, uh, the, he's still... Um, reports to the primate. So I'm just not sure how that's all going to get sort of sorted out. The other really important question that people continually ask is, um, uh, 
self-determination is one question, but self-sufficiency is another question. And how is the indigenous church going to move forward uh, on the sort of self-sufficiency uh, side of things? Now, it's true that, um, you know, 95% of, of indigenous priests are non-stipendiaries, so their kind of financial needs are very different from the church in the south. Nevertheless, they exist in large part because of uh, grants from the, to the Council of the North. And there is some question about whether the National Church is going to be able to continue to support the Council of the North to, to the level that they, they support them now. And uh, secondly, whether or not um, uh, the, you know, there will come to be uh, self-sufficiency on the part of the Indigenous Church. Those are interesting questions because uh, some of the church's coffers uh, go back to historic um, fundraising efforts by um, missionaries in England who raised money for ministry in the north to indigenous peoples. And there's some question, legitimate question, about whether all those funds were spent on ministry to indigenous peoples or maybe synod offices in the south or something. But Probably wouldn't be the first time the church may have not treated our indigenous brothers and sisters quite the way we yeah, said yeah. we were going yeah. to. But it was very positive, Orvin. It was, it was, it was uh, um, there was another great moment where the primate, um, as you probably, you're a church geek, you probably watch um, online too, but the church, the, <laughs> the, the, the primate, uh, he expressed apology for the spiritual harm caused uh, by the missionaries to um, First Peoples, and that was great, very graciously received uh, at the end of the of the General Synod. So I think I think we've taken uh, you know a significant step forward on that front, but it still remains to be seen how it's all going to um, come out. It's one of the parts of the church that's growing. The indigenous church is growing. Um, Maybe we need to get them down here as missionaries. <laughs> <laughs> um, moving forward from General Synod, there's so much language that is hurtful that was said back and forth. One side accusing one side of being ignorant, the other side accusing them bigotry, hatred, and all sorts of awful language. And I'm sure in our own parishes we have people on both sides who feel equally as strong. How do we move forward in like, fellowship and love and reach out to the other side when there's so much yeah. tension and yeah. anger and hurt. Well, I think that uh, this, this gets back to the sort of suffering part of it. I mean, I think that the natural sort of reaction is to is to become defensive um, and uh, and uh, you know to become aggressive, and uh, that's not what God calls us to do. I think we have to um, patiently listen to the. Um, you know, to the to, to, to the pain of, of, of those who are hurt by the church's decisions, and to own uh, you know our share in that. Um, uh, I don't think that the church is blameless at all in terms of its relationship uh, to people in lots of different kind of social conditions, and um, and uh, I think we need to hear that. I remember. <laughs> Remember when I first became bishop in the Diocese of Algoma, there were, they had a, um, uh, Sault Ste. Marie was the site of, a, of an Indian residential school. Uh, 
uh, called the Shingwok Indian Residential School. And a number of years ago, they started having a year, year annual gathering where the survivors came together. And um, it was really, you know, healing for them. And when I became bishop, I thought, well, you know, this was the, this was the school that the Diocese of Algoma ran. The Bishop of Algoma was involved in it. And so I should go. So I, I, I went to the, to the gathering. And uh, uh, there are lots of Anglican, uh, 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 you know, OG Cree people there from the various reserves, and they loved having their bishop there. But I did go to one session where uh, this guy uh, proceeded to tell the story of the Indian residential schools and how it had hurt his people. And the, there was a whole room full of people listening to this, but he didn't look at any of them except for me. And it's like I had this kind of target sort of on my chest, and, you know, and he'd, he'd point his finger at me and say, you know, the church did this, the church did this. And um, it, was, it was really, it was very painful. And uh, so afterwards, you know, I, did, I, I could hardly speak, and I went up to him and I said, you know, I, I, just, I just want you to know I really appreciated what you said, and I'm, I'm deeply sorry about, uh, you know, the church's relationship in the past and, and all. And I want to continue to hear, hear your story. So by the time I left Algoma, he was one of my closest um, sort of supporters, really. He never, never went to church, but, um, but, um, but they had a special party for me when I left and all. And so there were, there were, it was just a, and it wasn't, didn't have anything to do with me. It just really had to do with the fact that the church had kind of reached through that pain and was willing to sort of live with them a little bit in that pain, um, and they and they they need they need the church they need that bit of reconciliation. So, so that's what I would say. Uh, you know, take take it. You know, uh, I don't like being called a bigot. I don't think I'm a homophobe, but I'll 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 take that. And so you. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate your humility on that, Stephen, but you say it's not me, it's the church. Well, actually, it is you because you were there, and had you not been there, then who would have been yelling at? And yeah. I think, as you say, there is something about, we can say it's about the church, but the church has always been about individuals representing the body of Christ, right? And so yeah. even drawing what you said, it seems that humility and practice, that's how we heal those things. As The problem is both those things are really hard and they're desperately countercultural, <laughs> and so they don't come naturally to us. Yeah. And there's no quick fix. Yeah. And and just as you've demonstrated that being there, being present, listening to both sides, regardless of where we are, that's how we begin to mend those wounds. In my Baptist background, we don't have the same uh, <laughs> emphasis on. Uh, of the unity that's shared in, in an Anglican communion, in an Anglican sense of a, of a oneness, and that's one thing I've appreciated. Um, Baptist gangs tend to disfellowship from each other, yes. you know, and that's the big term that, that's used. Instead of solving things, we just, well, you're still Baptist, but we're another type. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in my fundamental background, you know, we've disfellowshipped over dispensationalism, we've disfellowshipped over... Sure versions of the Bible, and, uh, you know, of course we're dealing with issues of gender and sexuality and all those things that every, every group is doing. Yeah. 
um, if it's possible, and it's not, but if it's possible to think outside of those contexts, what do you do within a church movement when you feel passionately that something is part of the faith that, is, that needs to be defended once delivered, you know, to use a Jude verse? Um, what things are worth dying for? What things are worth yeah. disfellowshipping for? And how do you go about that? Or should you even go about it in today's yep. context? I know that's a lot of things together, but um, in my circles, those are the questions that are being asked. Yeah, no. And we've asked those questions in the Anglican Church as well. And there, there are those. Um, uh, you, you, you may know um, that... Um, in the mid-2000s, the Anglican Church of Canada suffered a you know, fairly significant division uh, where people who, on this issue of, of human sexuality, where they felt that the church had gone too far and, uh, that, it was a, and that it compromised the gospel. And so, uh, in fact, I had a priest in the Diocese of Algoma who, who, who actually told me that he thought, he thought it was a creedal matter. And uh, so pe people Which creed? Um, well, he thought it was a <laughs> he thought it was a sin against the incarnation. Okay. Um, so so pe people have their lines in the in the in the sand. There's no question about it. And and um, uh, I think we need to be you know um, careful about that only because. Um, you know, we, we think we may have, the, the, the line may be clear, but, you know, it's just like, you know, so many things in life, actually, if you look closer at it, the line's not so clear on the edges, and then it gets, you know, then it gets fuzzier and fuzzier, and, 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 and we need to, um, you know, sometimes people get pushed in their thinking to the point where they're not really sure that, uh, you know, what they were willing to die for before is really where they want to sort of pitch up now. Um, um, I, I was, I've always been helped in this um, by, um, by the sort of writing of John Stott, who was often asked uh, towards the end of his life about when he would be inclined to leave the church. And um, he was a, he, he kind of finessed this question around human sexuality and he thought that if a church formally changed the doctrine of marriage that he might, he might then feel that he had to leave, but he wasn't sure. And, uh, and so I've always urged caution, you know, to people that, uh, you know, are inclined to sort of draw those kinds of lines. For me, um, it's been a, crystal it's a Christological question. You know, I, want, I would want to sort of go back to the, you know, the councils of the church and say that, you know, this, this I think we can, and I know even that is kind of complicated, but, you know, I would want to say this is kind of where I'm willing to stay, uh, you know, in communion with folks. You know, if you can, if you, if you believe in the, uh, you know, the two natures of Christ and, you know, the his saving work on the cross, uh, then, then maybe there's enough that we have to, in common that we can get at the root of some of our differences. Um, other people might have different ways of approaching that, but... Yeah, along those lines, last night I, I, read, so I read the pastoral epistles, Jude, Second Peter, familiarized myself with the 
sort of way in which Paul, Peter, Jude deal with some controversy, you might say. It seems that certainly there's strong words said towards false teaching. I mean, I think Paul says, you know, to the second, uh, to, uh, to Thessalonians in the second epistle, you know, this is why there's judgment coming. <laughs> like, like, these people are going to, like, there's a hotter place for them, to paraphrase. But even so, he's, he's, he's really careful to say, hey, you correct people in love and in gentleness and those sorts of things. Yet, when he comes to moral behavior, with how it is that you, you act, there's just no punches pulled. To paraphrase, I don't know if this would be a fair, or, or how, I guess the question is, how would you appeal to the New Testament to understand how it is, I, I hear what you're saying about Christological uh, theology, maybe the sort of dividing line, but it seems like that uh, there's a moral line somewhere yep. Yep. Um, that's quite clear to the apostles, and as sort of apostolic succession is viewed in the Anglican Church, you have a, you have a responsibility in that way. So what do you do with that? Like, yep. is there a distinction between theology and, and behavior in that way? And is it, where does moral behavior, where's that line? Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I'd be inclined to say, I, I mean, if, if I was an apostle, I'd have a much better answer uh, to that. <laughs> but um, but, but um, I would say that probably, I don't, I don't know, it'd be interesting to have a discussion about this, but, you know, I would have said even in mainline um, uh, denominations that, you know, uh, the majority of what the church holds as kind of an ethical ideal would be perfectly harmonious with what the New Testament teaches. But there might be these areas, these, these you know, tiny areas, tiny areas, these, these, uh, these areas that aren't mentioned, uh, you know, a lot, um, where uh, some people think that uh, the, what's being called out as questionable ethical behavior um, doesn't resonate with kind of where we are as a culture today. You're familiar with all these arguments, I know. There's nothing, nothing, nothing new there. And so that's where the conversation has to happen, it seems to me. And um, I'm so far, you know, not convinced that, um, you know, that it wasn't in Paul's mind and, uh, you know, uh, Romans, uh, that what he regarded as um, of uh, inappropriate sexual behavior didn't comprehend, you know, all manner of, of uh, you know, sexual relationships that we see today and we seem to be willing to accommodate. Um, but uh, that's, that can be a very nuanced argument and it's not kind of straightforward, you know, in the same way that, uh, you know, incest is, which is called out, or murder is, which is called out. And, uh, you know, let's not go down the road of capital punishment, but... Uh, Gossip is as well in Romans. <laughs> well, and there and there are sure, you know, and I and I think you know the majority of the church would say, yeah, you know, slander is that's not good. You shouldn't shouldn't slander. Um, you know. So, I mean, I think we do have to be true to our convictions. Uh, you know, about I wouldn't use the term calling out the church, but. 
but um, holding up before the church a particular view of some of these ethical questions and um, saying that we need to, I, you know, I, I can't go along with you there. We need to think about this. You know, my diocese wanted to, wanted to spend money that was made off of gambling, right? And, um, um, you know, let's, let's talk about that. But I'm going to bring this to a close. Are you? Any yeah, closing I, I, comments yeah. from you, Stephen? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I just wanted to tell you my little prejudices. Can I tell Excellent, you? yeah. I just right. have a few. How long do you, are you going to take? <laughs> I just, just have a few that... Just that, a few prejudices. Yeah, yeah, that I, have, that I haven't mentioned. Okay, a couple um, of minutes worth of prejudices. So I, I would just say, what, first thing I would say is we have not done a good job of, of catechesis in the church. Mm-hmm. And um, so this is another, this is a challenge that, that should be facing the church. After a debate like we've had at, at General Synod, um, it's still, you know, it's, it's, it's a complicated issue um, in a variety of dimensions. Um, and the idea that, um, you know, sort of high school students, you know, are weighing in on uh, some of these debates uh, in the way that they do, mm-hmm. uh, I, I find that problematic. Um, uh, so I, I, th- I think. I think we need to do a better job of, of uh, teaching in the church. I think we need to be willing to embrace what we don't understand. I know that, uh, I've used this example before, I remember when our older daughter was born, and uh, soon after she was born, we had to take her in for her needle. And, and of course, you know, the doctor comes in, or the nurse comes in, jabs the needle in, kid screams, and you can't enter their world and say, look, this is good for you. You have, you have to do this, right? They don't have the capacity to understand why that pain is essential to their well-being and their flourishing. And sometimes with the, you know, with the design of God, uh, I think sometimes we just have to say, God, I don't understand why it's this way, but for the you know, and I'd love to understand, but I'm not going to make my acceptance of it conditional on my ability to understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the time being, I'm going simply to accept it. And I think the church. I think there are lots of areas where the church uh, would be further along if they adopted that posture. Um, the other thing I want to say is that uh, we do uh, get it wrong in synods. We haven't got to the question of how the Holy Spirit works in these kinds of gatherings. And I do want to say that I think everybody who's interested in these questions should read Ephraim Radner's uh, work, Brutal Unity, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, a whole discussion of, of uh, conflict in the church and how the church tries to find a consensus. And it's, it's a brilliant piece of work. It's why I now think in terms of the quest for unity in terms of personal suffering for the other, um, but it's also a cry from, from his own heart. Uh, each section is concluded with a kind of Bible study, um, uh, and it's, it's, it's very moving in parts. But the church does sometimes get it wrong, and uh, I often remind myself and when we're debating Canon 21, which is the Canon on Marriage, that there's a parallel in the Anglican Articles of Religion, Article 21 which says that councils may err and sometimes have erred even in the things pertaining unto God. 
And uh, so I think that uh, the acts of synod are always provisional and uh, that they are a step uh, in, the, in the best sense. They're a step uh, in a discernment of uh, God's unfolding purposes for us. Thank you, Steve.